friends, think about this life. I mean, why are you here? I know one thing. You were not born to pay taxes and then die. I mean, what inspires you in your life? I mean, what, what makes you get out of bed? What makes you try a little harder? What is it that makes you step up and rise up and stand out regardless of what people are saying around you? What inspires you? Think about that for just a moment. I was thinking about that this morning, just studying this, this letter You know, looking at the life of the Apostle Paul, and I thought about some people that really inspire me. Have you ever heard of the uh, Nicene Council? I can think probably six or eight of you maybe. You know, the Nicene Council? Now, I know we're not going to blather on about uh, church history here, but I want to tell you, church history is people. And at the Nicene Council, it it was an important church assembly addressing some heresies that started to develop in the uh, fourth century. And they produced what is known as the Nicene Creed. And it was put forth to defend the deity of Christ. That question of is he really God or was he, was he a special man? But, but what is really fascinating about this, as a bunch of egghead scholars getting together, there were 318 delegates, but fewer than 12 of them. Think about this, 318 delegates but fewer than 12 of them had not lost an eye or a hand or a leg or something perhaps even worse, having been tortured for Christ. And yet here they are, gathering together, and even those missing a leg making a stand for Christ. I mean, these are people that didn't, didn't need to count the cost. They had already done it. We will stand for Jesus whatever it cost us. I'm inspired by 56 men who pledged their lives and their fortunes and their sacred honor in signing a declaration of independence, knowing that putting their, their, their autograph on that piece of paper could cost them everything their lives, their families' lives, people who counted the cost and said it's worth it to me. Who inspires you? Certainly on this list of inspiring people is the Apostle Paul. I mean, we just read here a few chapters ago of all of the things that Paul has gone through that any lesser man would simply pack it up and walk away. And in this chapter here that we're going to look at, it's chapter 5, so I want to encourage you to take your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in the word, this, this list of, of people who are inspiring has to include Paul. And what inquiring minds want to know is really, why did Paul put up with it? Why did Paul stick it out? I mean, he's writing a letter to a church, just throwing attacks and suggesting that he isn't the man he claims to be, that he talks big in the letters, but he's a small man in person. Some really hateful things thrown at this guy. And he's simply out there doing all he can to preach the gospel, regardless of the, co- the cost, and to build up these saints. 
He doesn't walk away and say, I'm done with that church. He sticks with it. So today's text reveals why Paul kept at it. And I'm suggesting in our study of why Paul kept at it, we're going to find some good reasons why we ought to keep at it. Why we ought to stick to it. Why we ought not to hang up the Sunday school teaching books and and keep at it. Why we ought not to walk away from a ministry because it simply got hard or less people are showing up than used to. Friends, we got to keep at it. And I want to suggest to you here, we have uh, four things, four reasons why Paul stuck stood with it here. So notice, if you will, in verse 1 of chapter 5 in the book of uh, 2 Corinthians, the first reason that Paul didn't pack it up and walk away is the reassurance that something better awaited him. He faced death every time he traveled to a new city. There were a group of people chasing after this guy. They wanted him dead. Even imagine that for a minute. I mean, it's one thing for somebody to want you to have a really bad day. I hope it doesn't turn out well. And if you buy a car, you get one of those Monday cars where there's something wrong with the electric. These people wanted him dead. But Paul kept at it. Why? Because he had a reassurance that something better awaits us. He looked to the life to come. Look at this. I mean, one day we're going to have a new body, Paul says. Yeah, they want to throw stones at this one, and they want to tear my flesh open with these whips or beat me with rods. Doesn't matter. I got a new body on order. <laughs> Look at here, verse four, verse 1, Paul says, for we know. And, and throughout this passage, if you're one that likes to make marks in your Bible or highlight, if you've got an electronic version, it's best to use the electronic highlight as opposed to a highlighter. But uh, you're going to see a series of we knows, the things that Paul knows that keeps him at it. And the first thing he says is, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, he's talking about his body, is destroyed... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. A couple of things we know about this glorified body that Paul is talking about. They can take a swipe at me. They can take a limb from me. But I got a new body waiting, a glorified body. Paul is talking about. And what about this body can we tell from what he's saying? We notice this is a body that is fit for eternity. Notice this. It's a body fit for eternity. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, and eternal in the heavens. And now's where we talk about how these bodies are starting to waste away. Come on. You know the whole orchestra that begins to play when you get up out of a chair? (laughs) You know, and, and when you're meeting with a family, there's always this organ, organ recital, my liver and my kidneys and my adrenals and my whatever else it is. You know, we, we, this body is not going to last forever and doesn't need to be because we got a one that's coming. And there's no more aches and there's no more pains and there's no more doctor's visits. I'm not saying there's not doctors in heaven. I'm just saying we won't have to go see him if we don't <laughs> And if we do, it'll be just simply a lovely visit, not with a bill to follow. I'll tell you, friends, we've got this body that's fit 
for eternity. It's a body that's going to last. I don't know about your body, but mine's going to look good. (laughs) Paul tells us something else about this body. It is a body for which we groan. For For in this tent, our body we groan. And some of you young fellas out there, you're like, no, I'm good. (laughs) Your turn is coming. (laughs) Your turn is coming. It is the way of all living, you know. We are are falling apart bit by bit, cell by cell, my friends. It starts with the skin. You know what hit me first, of course, is the hair. You know, you start getting a little grays here and there, and you're like, ha-ha, that's funny. And then you get a haircut, and it's all gray. Give me my brown hair back. Give me some glue. And then what I noticed is the skin. Can I get an amen on the skin? You're like, what is this? That's my dad's hand. (laughs) It happens. It happens. That's why you go buy a gallon of lotion. Start now, I'm telling you, (laughs) if you're of the sort. But Paul says, for in this tent we groan, longing to be put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. <laughs> and, and, and Paul, you know, this, this concept of naked here has, has brought a lot of trouble, okay? And part of it is this. When we think of ourself, we think of our body, okay? We are a soul and we have a body, but normally we think of ourselves in the opposite way. We are a body and we have a soul, but we are a living soul, and we have this tent, Paul says. And remember, tents are temporary. I mean, that's the idea anyway. It's fun to go camping, but let's get back to the walls, you know? So, so this tent, we take off this body, this tent, and we're not going to be left that way. There is a glorified body that awaits us. So we will not be just souls hanging out in the clouds playing these weird-looking instruments as if all of us could play stringed instruments anyway. Come on. God's preparing it for us. He's preparing it. It's a, it's a body fit for heaven. It's a body that we groan for, that we long for. Look at verse 4. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal, look at this, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And here is the wonder of that statement, is that we get it exactly the opposite wrong. We think this is the life. Friends, if you have trusted in Christ, you are moving toward the life, the fulfillment of our salvation. Salvation is more than just a a, a legal proceeding of, of, of in debt and being forgiven. It is a process that you begin, that we are saved first from the penalty of sin. And then we go through this process of having mastery over sin, But the ultimate aspect of our salvation is being saved from the very presence of sin when we receive the ultimate adoption and we live in the presence of God. Nothing in between, no sin here or there, not even a thought that crosses your mind. That is the ultimate extent of our salvation. Here in verse 5, 
we find that God is preparing us for it. He's preparing us for the very life that will swallow up what is mortal. Mortal means there's an end coming. Immortality means there is no end. Swallowed up by life. And he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. God is working in you and through you and around you to prepare you for the life that is to come. Remember, we're talking about what inspires Paul to keep at it. When everything looks like failure, when people aren't responding the way you hoped they would, Paul says, there's a life coming that's going to make it worth it. Whatever they can do to me, they can't take what God is preparing me for away. So this body that we will have this new body, we will have this body that God is preparing for us. And then notice at the end of verse 5, and God has given us a guarantee. Think about this. Verse 5, he who has prepared us for this thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. In Ephesians chapter 1, you know, Paul talks about this a little bit. This this. This uh, word of a guarantee is the same kind of word as an engagement ring. It is a promise that God will fulfill. I mean, today is uh, Valentine's Day. Guys, if you didn't know that, welcome to today. (laughs) Make everyone around you feel special today, friends, because if they're around you, they ought to be. But friends, when a guy gives a gal... That ring, whatever it's made of, whatever it's designed to look like, friends, it is a promise that one day we will be wed. We will be together till the end. I know a lot of people don't keep that promise, but that's what the promise is. But when God makes that promise, He keeps it. He has given us the Spirit of God as a guarantee of the life to come. Think about that. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you have the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God in us is a relationship. We are now in a relationship with the Spirit of God. The Scripture, now we don't want to transition our sermon into a whole different thing here. But friends, what it means to be in a relationship with the Spirit of God is to be led by the Spirit of God. It is to be changed by the Spirit of God. We we talk about being filled with the Spirit of God. It is not the same thing as a big glass and milk. The filling is, is being compared to someone who is filled with wine. The issue is influence, not amount. And when you are influenced by the Spirit of God, then your character is developed to match that of Christ. That we are people of love, we are people of joy, we are people of peace. It is the fruit of the Spirit's work in our life. And the the fact that you have seen fruit developed in your life, and you are not the same woman that you used to be, and you don't look at the world, men, the way you used to see it, that is evidence of the work of the Spirit of God in your life. It is the engagement ring, as it were, around your finger. The Spirit of God is a promise Paul said, I can go through all of this because I have a promise from God. 
They can destroy this body, but I've got a new one coming. Think about that. So reason number one why Paul doesn't pack it up and walk away is the reassurance that something better awaits him. And number two, a realization that what we do here matters. What you decide you will do with your days, with your time and your talents and your energies, my friends, it matters. All of it matters. Take a look here, what Paul says here in verse 6. This realization of that what we do here matters. He says, so we are always of good courage. Paul says, I'm encouraged by being reminded of what yet comes. And here's another, and we know. Notice, he says, we know that while we are here, at, where we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And so how is it that we do what we need to do? How is it that what we are doing here that matters, how should it ought to be done? Well, how we do it is we walk by faith. Paul says, verse 7 here, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We do not operate based on what we see around us. We operate based on the promises of God. We live out what we live out because we know what God has said about it. We can step out and we can stand up and we can speak up regardless of how people respond, how they respond because of what God has told us. We know that it's not based on our talent. It's not based on our experience or our creativity. It is based on the power of God. Think about Moses. I know I bring this guy up a lot because he's such a great pattern for us. You know, we're studying this in second hour, and we look at his calling, and, you know, he, he's raised in, miraculously in, in, uh, in Pharaoh's uh, uh, house. He's got the Egyptian education. I mean, he's got the Ph.D. in pyramid building, you know? And, and, and the Scripture says that he gave up the pleasures of sin for a season, to be associated with his people, the people of promise. And God called him and he said, no, I'm not your guy. No, you're going to go to, I don't talk that well, you know. And everything, when he measured himself up to the task, he said, I'm not the guy. And the reason he did that is because he didn't know quite yet that it wasn't about him. It was about God working through him. And whenever Moses simply did what God told him to do, God did great work. What's in your hand? What's a stick? <laughs> we'll throw it on the ground. Well, I can do that accidentally. And it's a serpent. Put your hand in your cloak. It's leprosy. Put it back. All's good. That wasn't Moses. It was God. He simply needed to be convinced, just like you and I this morning, that the great stuff happens when we simply obey. It's not the obedience that does it. It's the God who honors obedience. The God who works for, through little things to accomplish great things. Paul knew that. Paul said, yeah, I got a good education, but not for this stuff. What keeps me going is what God is doing. This realization to what he does here matters. 
He says, yeah, we walk by faith. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. But we walk by faith, not by sight. So how do we do it? We walk by faith. Why do we do it? Verse 8, yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord, and who wouldn't? So whether we are at home or away, Paul says this is how, why we do it. We make it our aim to please him. The motivation behind every action we take here is to bring glory to him. We aim to please him. Why? Why ought that to be your aim today? I want to tell you, friends, this stuff matters. This is not optional stuff here, friends. I mean, you get to make your choices, but you never get to choose the consequences. In verse 10, Paul reminds us why it matters. Because we will stand before Jesus. Verse 10, for we must all, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I want to tell you about this judgment. This is not a judgment of sin that took place at the cross. This is the opportunity where you stand before Jesus and all of the choices that you made and all of the actions that you took are presented before Him. And it is either a gift of love to Him because of all that you did and all that you sacrificed and all that you invested in to please Him and to bring glory to Him. Or it's a, well, this is all I got. There will be a day where you're going to look Jesus in the face and what, offer an excuse? Well, I didn't know. And yet you're here and you know. Well, I didn't think it mattered. And yet it's so clear. This judgment is a time for reward. It's a time for God to respond to what you did for Him. When you simply trusted Him, so you stood up and you spoke. Or you took action, even though you didn't know if it would matter. Remember what Jesus said? He offered even a cup of, a cup of water to someone who's thirsty. When you do it for them, you do it unto me. It all counts. But I want you to tell you this. Yeah, this can be a fearful moment. Not because we fear judgment. <laughs> the great example is uh, when, when Mel and I were first married, you know. Um, uh, I mean, now we're husband and wife. It's the real thing, you know. We're married and everything. We got the piece of paper and we're living in an apartment together. We're even sleeping in the same bed. It's the real deal. And Melanie makes the first meal. I mean, here she is in the kitchen. She's the wife, and she's going to make this special meal. Now, think about what's behind all of that. You know, it's the getting everything together. Ladies, you know the stress of this, you know. It's got to be just right, you know. And you might even say, I'm just afraid it won't turn out. Well, why? Because your husband is going to come home and beat you senseless? That's not the fear, the fear is this, that it won't be what I want it to be. 
It is the sense of, I have this big picture of what it can be, and I want it to be. The, the fear here is not that, that Jesus is going to look at you and smack you. That's not the point here. The, the fear is, is that I should show up empty-handed with nothing to offer him as an example of my love for him. That's the fear. And Paul says, therefore, and here's that word, knowing, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. There's another motivation, friends. What we do, we know how we do it. We walk by faith. We know why we do it, to please the Lord. And what is it that we do? We persuade others. Look at verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are besides ourselves, it is for God. If we are in a right mind, it is for you. Paul says, yeah, we persuade others. We go and talk to them about Jesus. You know, someone walks up to Paul and says, hey, what do you think of the weather? You know what Paul says? What do you think of the guy who made it? Everything in Paul's conversation was, was to get people closer to Jesus. Because one day he would stand before Jesus. And you may recall in, in when Paul was called by the Lord, Jesus had said to him, I must show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. And Paul could point to every one of those times when he was rested, when he was placed in a jail, when his life was threatened at every moment. He could point to it and Jesus, I did this for you. It was worth it because of you. Friends, the realization of what we do here matters. And so it matters how we do it. We walk by faith. It is faith that pleases God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Why we do it? We do it to please God. Well, if we're going to please Him, then it has to be done by faith. And what we do, we persuade others to trust the Lord. There is no other reason for us to live on this planet once we have trusted Christ other than this, to impact the people around us. It is the only thing you cannot do in heaven. And it is the greatest reason that we are here left on earth, to impact people for Christ, to persuade them to trust in Christ. And Paul, in this very moment, talking about evangelism, is brought right back to this church. This is why I do what I do. This is why I'm so passionate. I will stand before Jesus for what I do with you, and I cannot walk away. And so, Paul laying it out, how ought we to do it? Walk by faith. Why should we do it? To please the Lord. And what should we do? Persuade them to trust Jesus. And what is it that compels you? Is it fear? Paul says here in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. 
It is his love for us that controls us, that compels us. Christ's love for others, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Look at the impact here. Let's read it again slowly. For the love of Christ controls us. Why? Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that, for this purpose. Why did he die for you? That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. One of the biggest turns of trusting in Christ is the reason for which we live. Up until from birth until the point that you trust Christ, you live only for yourself. It is sin, it is the the foundation of sin, it is the source of sin, which is selfishness, only looking out for yourself. But Christ died that we would live for him, that we would say no to us and yes to him. For him who for their sake died and was raised. Well, he gave them the example. In the fact that he died for you, we now ought to live for him. And regardless of background, whoever you are, wherever you're from. Verse 16, for now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. It does not matter who you are or where you're from. The gospel is for you. And so what compels us? Christ's love for others. And here in verse 17, that Christ changed us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, what does in Christ mean? If anybody has put their faith in Christ, they are now relationally with Christ. They are now in a relationship with Jesus. So if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. I am not the man I once was. It is evident to everyone who knew me. It is evident to anybody that knew me 20 years ago, let alone 30 or 40, the Spirit of God at work to change me from the inside out. And if you have put your faith in Christ, people would say the same about you because we are a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. So here's Paul talking about this ministry that matters It matters how we do it. We walk by faith. It matters why we do it, to please the Lord. It matters what we do, persuading others. And it matters what compels us, the love of Christ. But here in verse 18, it matters who sent us. Christ has called us. And look about, Paul talks about this calling that is true for everyone in this room Everyone who has claimed the name of Jesus, everyone who has put their faith in Him, this calling is for them. And this calling begins with being reconciled to Jesus. Verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. That word reconciliation, that word reconciled means that there was an issue in a relationship. And of course, we were separated from God because of our sin. But Christ's death brought reconciliation, 
repaired and restored a relationship to God. And so God reconciled us to himself. But I notice this, that not only did he reconcile us to himself, he called us to the ministry of reconciliation. Now he called you and he called me to work and to interact with others in order to reconcile them to God. Now you are not the one that can do it, but you are the one that can tell them how. You are the one that can talk to them about Jesus and what he has done and why he has done it in order that they might be reconciled to God. And that is the ministry that Paul has been called to and you and I have been called to as well. Now you think, no, that's just Paul he's talking about. Well, let's take a look at the pronouns as we go through there. So God has not only reconciled us to himself, he has called us to the ministry of reconciliation. And verse 20, therefore says we. Friends, that's me and that's you. That's all of us. We are ambassadors for Christ. And you know what an ambassador is? An ambassador doesn't go tell their own message. An ambassador tells the message of the person who sent them. And the message that we preach is this. Say it with me, friends. Christ died for our sin and rose from the dead. That is the message that we proclaim. In just a couple of weeks, friends, we'll be celebrating that resurrection once again. But God reconciled us to him. He called us to the ministry of reconciliation, and therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God, look at this picture, God making his appeal through us. Think about your last week. Is there anything you said or did or chose not to do in order that God may make his appeal through you? It's the ministry he's called all of us to. God making his appeal through us. And so here's Paul saying, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin. Who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And there it is, all tied up in a bow. What it is, what it is that motivates Paul, what it is that ought to motivate us. Once again, my friends, the motivation is this, the reassurance that something better awaits us. It is worth it. Whatever it costs you, it is worth it. Whatever it is you must leave behind, it is worth it. The realization that what we do here matters. It absolutely does matter. We ought to be motivated every day just like Paul because of the fear of the Lord that we might stand before him empty-handed. Don't let it happen to you, my friends. Don't let it happen to you. It matters. How we do it matters. So let's wrap it up here, friends. Something great always, ha- always awaits those who serve the Lord. Something great always awaits those who serve the Lord. What that great thing is may vary per person, per, per event, but something great always awaits those who serve the Lord. Friends, if it should cost you your very life in this world to live for Christ, it will wor- be worth it. It will be worth it. Something great always awaits those who serve the Lord. So in light of this truth... 
serve the Lord courageously with reckless abandonment. Serve Him, whatever it costs you. It'll be worth it. There is no cost, there is no price too high that when you get to heaven, you will not say, it was worth it. Every penny, every moment, every cut along the way. Serve the Lord courageously. And serve the Lord faithfully. Serve the Lord faithfully. Why? Because He will one day reward it. There is nothing that you will do, no prayer sent to heaven, no thought of heaviness on your mind for someone else that Christ does not notice. Nothing is missed. And when you stand before Him, perhaps those golden words will be said of you, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful. Hmm, rewards to come, my friends. And lastly, serve the Lord diligently. And why? Because people need it. We've got a hurting world out there. It is lost and it is decaying by the day. And we see it collapsing all around us. And God has sent you, an ambassador of Christ, to be the cure. Suffering is, <laughs> is a lot like being plunged into boiling water. Now, if you're an egg, that boiling water does nothing but harden you. But if you're a potato, it's going to soften you up. So my instruction to you, my friends, is be a potato. <laughs> Something you never thought you'd hear me say. But don't forget it, my friends. It may sound funny. <laughs> but there have been many a day when I have asked God to make me a potato. Because it's too easy to be hardened by the things of this world. And if our focus is on what is true and what we know, it'll be worth it.